welcome to my mommy's podcast. This episode is brought to you by Perfect Supplements. This is a new supplement company that I really love. I've recently discovered them. Their products are made in the USA. They make all natural, nutrient-dense superfood supplements at incredibly reasonable prices. So I found this company really helps make it possible for families to eat a nutrient-packed, all-natural diet without breaking the bank. And even better, they offer bulk discounts. So if you have a big family, this has really helped our budget. You can buy all of their amazing supplements like liver, collagen, even fermented kale, and get up to 35% off with bulk orders. If you use the code wellnessmama10 at perfectsupplements.com, you can also get an additional 10% off of your order on top of that. Definitely check them out. The other sponsor for this episode is the Wellness Mama Cookbook. And yes, that is my cookbook, but I wanted to specifically talk about it for a second because I spent a lot of time compiling this cookbook as a resource for busy moms. As a mom myself, I know that you just don't have extra time to spend hours and hours each day in the kitchen. And this is why the cookbook contains all of our family favorite recipes, Many of them you can make in under half an hour using only one pan, so you can save on the dishes as well. And they have sneaky veggies, which use veggies in place of a lot of the refined ingredients in many foods. I know that your family will love the recipes as much as ours does, so grab it at any major bookstore on Amazon or check it out on wellnessmama.com. Welcome to the Healthy Moms Podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com. Today, I am here with one of the leaders of the paleo movement and one of the original people who really helped popularize this way of eating and who has been a beacon for so many. Rob Wolf is the New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Solution, The Original Human Diet. He's a former research biochemist and one of the world's leading experts in paleolithic nutrition. His work has transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world. He has a really popular podcast and blog, and he's also functioned as the review editor for the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism and the Journal of Evolutionary Health. So needless to say, he's incredibly smart, and he has a heart for helping people. As a fun fact, he's also a former California State powerlifting champion, and those, in case you don't know, that's not the bodybuilding guys who put on the fake muscles. Those are the guys who can squat and deadlift hundreds and hundreds of pounds, and he's a 6-0 amateur kickboxer. Uh, His list of awards and accolades goes on and on. I could spend all day talking about it, but instead I just want to jump into the interview. So Rob, welcome and thanks for being here. Thank you. When people do a full bio like that, it, it's so grandiose. I feel like I should be taller than five foot nine. I, I, I feel a little, little uh, uh, like I'm not bringing up my part of the, the bargain, but thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And actually, I want to talk about the powerlifting thing for a minute. I know that's not going to be the topic of our podcast, but I find that fascinating. I didn't even know that about you. Yeah, that was it was a long time ago. I, I was a teenage California State powerlifting champion, and uh, I actually had a, a near-fatal youth football injury. I had a bruised spine and a whiplash. I was actually full body paralyzed for a couple of days and they weren't really too sure how much, you know, inflammation and nerve damage I was going to sustain from that. But fortunately, most everything came back. I still actually have a little problems with my, my left hand and my left side relative to the, to the right side. But for the most part, I had a really uh, dramatic recovery. And part of my rehab, the neurosurgeon suggested that I start powerlifting. And there just happened to be two uh, world champion powerlifters living in uh, Redding, California at that time. And they kind of took me under their wing. And I had some pretty good success with that. But, uh, you know, eating 5000 calories a day was kind of rough on my social life. (laughs) So I I, uh, eventually got out of that and have been doing uh, martial arts of various kinds for the last uh, almost 20 years. I did Thai boxing. And then the last few years, I've been doing a lot of Brazilian jujitsu. So I I like to joke that I do some old guy grappling. So that that's what I've been doing more more recently. That's exciting. We, uh, my husband and I and our kids also take uh, samurai jujitsu, which is the Japanese oh, nice. version. And it's yeah super fun. There's a lot of grappling, but it's also a lot of just throws and wrist locks. I'm sure you guys do the same, but it's so much fun. It, it is a ton of fun and just amazing for kids. Like, like I think it's the, some form of jujitsu, whether it's traditional Japanese or Brazilian jujitsu is really the martial art that kids could, should probably do. I would make an argument for some capoeira also because um, it teaches so much rhythm and you learn music and it's just a ton of fun. And for boys, if boys can learn how to dance, it doesn't even matter if they're a little bit on the homely side, they're always going to have a date. So it, it'll teach <laughs> you how to dance too. 
That's awesome. So you were definitely one of the leaders of what's now the very well-known paleo and primal movement, and you wrote kind of the book about it. But what have you been up to since then? Because that was in 2010, and you have maintained a really great web presence since then, and I know you're involved in a lot of different things. So what are you up to these days? Oh, man. You know, about five years ago, we moved to Reno, Nevada. We had we had just been uh, recently pregnant, and we were trying to figure out where to put down some roots, and my wife's father lived in Reno and it was really just going to be a, a holdover spot until we had our, our first kid, which ended up being a daughter, Zoe. And, but we were in town maybe three weeks. We, we blew into town, managed to find a super cool house, bought it. And we were here maybe three weeks. And then I got a phone call out of the blue from this guy who called himself Greeny, but he, he ended up uh, being more formally referred to as Dr. Jim Greenwald. He was uh, a now retired, but a formerly uh, nationally and internationally renowned orthopedic surgeon. And he said, hey, we have some really cool stuff going on at our clinic. You need to come down and check this out. And so I went to this uh, clinic down in downtown Reno. And lo and behold, there were my books and Mark Sisson's books and Gary Tobb's books and uh, they had just been in the process of wrapping up a two-year pilot study with the Reno Police, Reno Fire Department, and they found 35 people that were at high risk for type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. They got these people on a paleo diet, modified their sleep and exercise as best they could, and based off the changes in their blood work and their health risk assessment, it's estimated that this pilot study alone saved the city of Reno about $22 million with a 33 to 1 return on investment. And uh, I was pretty, you know, impressed by that. And I managed to wiggle my way into the board of directors for, for that clinic and started helping with the marketing and some outreach into the, the military and some other kind of uh, areas that they had not gone into. And then I've been working the past couple of years trying to figure out a way to take this risk assessment program and scale it up and take it out to the masses. That's amazing, the results that that study had. And obviously, I'm sure you've heard those stories as well from all these years of people using your system and your books over the years. Let's talk about, so you have a new book coming out called Wired to Eat. And I got an advanced copy to read and I love it. But talk about how it differs than your past books. Well, you know, the Paleo Solution was, um, when I look back at it now and I read it, I'm still kind of surprised that sections of it are as good as they, they are. Like I, I'm, I'm like, wow, I actually wrote that, that that's reasonably impressive. You know, I don't know that I could do that good of a job again, but it, the book helped a lot of people, like just based off the feedback and kind of the, the following and the sales and everything. But there, there's been a couple of niggling pieces around this whole paleo topic, like, uh, lots and lots of energy goes into asking the question, is this food paleo versus is this food or or even activity, is it good for me? You know, that's really kind of the more important piece. This paleo diet template is really amazing, but I've always looked at it as a starting point and not a finishing point. Like it's the place that we start asking questions and start investigating. It's not the final, you know, finishing place. And so I, I really... Since the six years that it, since we released the Paleo Solution, I've been noodling on that element of of things and noticed that there's really a huge variation for folks in the way that they respond to different foods. Some people do fantastically on low carb. For other people, low carb isn't a great fit. Some people can tolerate certain types of grains. Other people can't. And so there was a lot of customization in that story. And even that customization would change over time. Somebody would start a program and they were insulin resistant, overweight, uh, maybe they had sleep disturbances. They get the sleep disturbances squared away, they fix their gut, and and maybe they used a low-carb approach to do that. But then over the course of time, that low-carb approach may not work for them. They may start developing some adrenal fatigue symptoms and stuff. And, you know, they got so attached to one modality that they didn't think, oh, wow, maybe I need to change things now that my body has changed. So that that's one piece that is very, very different about Wired to Eat relative to the Paleo Solution. I mean, the Paleo Solution, even though I, I tried to do a good job of saying, hey, we're we're just starting from here and we need to branch out and explore after we we get healthy, like it, it uh, you know, it's it's very much like caveman, you know, mallet over the head, paleo like that. That's the message. So 
In this one, we're really trying to talk about customization and personalization. And we do use this evolutionary biology ancestral health template as our starting place. It's kind of like our, our safe spot for getting going. But then I really encourage people and I, I feel like I do a much, much better job of explaining how to venture out and uh, explore these other avenues once you've you've kind of hit some goals using some some methods for resetting one's appetite. And then the uh, you know, the underlying theme of the book is looking at the neuroregulation of appetite and just this notion that we are really genetically wired for a different time, a different life way. And if you find navigating the modern food environment challenging, you should not be surprised with that. There should not be any guilt or shame or, or feelings of failure if, you know, you've got a bag of chips in the, the pantry and some ice cream in the refrigerator and you sit down at the end of a long, stressful day and all that you can do is fixate on those foods. That is totally, completely normal and there's nothing wrong with you. Now, if we have some health issues or we want to do some body composition change, we might need to do something different, like just get that stuff out of the house and only have it when we eat out or, you know, something like that. We might need some other strategies. But over the last six years, I've just noticed that for so many people, there was this profound sense of guilt and shame when they tried to affect change, whether it was movement or dietary or even, you know, some uh, like meditation or mindfulness. And they found that stuff challenging, like they found it really hard to pull out five minutes of their day and do some some, you know, quiet breathing relative to doing the the kind of cocaine like dopamine stimulation of looking at Facebook or or other social media platforms. You know, we were just in this environment that is really well designed to play against what what was successful in the past and it now ensnares us today. I love that. I think you bring such a good voice of reason to this right now. And especially that's an important point about the personalization aspect. And I've always said that I had a few friends who got very dogmatic about following a paleo diet, which is awesome. And it had great results for them. But when it came to the point where they couldn't actually have a social life or like it impacted <laughs> these other aspects of their life. And I always used to say to me, it, it, the primary thing is not like what did people use to eat back then only, but based on what we know of that and with modern science and the ability to test and find out more personalized things. What do we ourselves need to do today? Because obviously we live in a much different world like you talk about then than people did when they ate these diets before. And I love how you really work in the personalized nutrition of this. The thing also that I really pulled from it is you talk about having a healthy relationship with food. And this is like a buzz phrase that every magazine uses. But you take an entirely different angle that I think is going to help a ton of people, especially women. So can you talk about that? I hope it does. I know it's going to piss a lot of people off. Like it, it, um, it's interesting, maybe even backing up a little bit, you know, if we go to a doctor or most dietitians and we, we seek advice about how to lose weight or, or affect some body composition changes, we're told, um, you need to eat less and move more. And that sounds great. And if we lock people in a metabolic ward, essentially, prison without the shower perks and we deprive them of food and we exercise them, they will lose weight. But as soon as these people escape into a free living environment, typically, it, unless the food composition is is appropriate, they will figure out ways of of eating enough food to to not really change their body composition. And this is the big challenge. So we have this message coming out of our our expert pool that is completely wrong. Like we are wired to eat more and move less. That's our fundamental default mode. It's this concept called optimum foraging strategy. Every organism on the planet kind of follows this and it's kind of basic economics. Like if you are living out in the environment, you need to get more energy than what you expend trying to acquire that energy. It's just, it's just like a bank account. If you spend more than what you get, then you're going to end up bankrupt. And, and so the message that we're, we're told kind of mechanistically from our experts is completely counter to the way that our genetics are wired to live in this this world. And then there's a a kind of emotional meme or story that is promulgated by mainly the medical establishment, but also the the media is really glommed onto this. And it's this notion that you need a healthy relationship with food. And again, on the on the surface level, that sounds great. It's like, wow, we need to be at peace with our food and, you know, we we love it and embrace it. And the more that I looked at this, the more people that I worked with, whether it was in a medical clinic setting like here in Reno or running a, a gym in Chico, 
the people who were using any type of verbiage around a healthy relationship to food or, you know, were really kind of fixated on that had huge problems. And as I dug and dug and dug, what I discovered is it had nothing to do with food. The, the, there wasn't a relationship with food. We don't have cheating or morality around food. We have consequences of food. If we eat certain foods, we're going to feel better. If we eat other foods, we're not going to feel so good. And that's it. And there's really not a, a morality piece around it. And uh, what I discovered is very frequently there were either power issues, control issues, abandonment issues that somehow got tied into food and that this then became the fixation point. And so focusing on a healthy relationship with food was actually – a massive distractor, and it was guaranteeing that the person wasn't going to do the work to actually address the underlying issue. And I actually relate a story in the book about a, a very high-powered entrepreneur that I ended up working with. This person has produced products and, and innovations that have positively benefited all of our lives, and I mean like everybody. So a really, really a, a world-moving individual but this person has historically been significantly overweight throughout his life, um, had a lot of health problems and uh, had a very estranged relationship with everybody around him except his children. Like he had a very estranged relationship with his wife. He used either money to control the people around him or food to, you know, kind of ass assuage his own issues. And, and I was trying to figure this whole thing out with this guy um, because it was really a challenge to get him moving forward and try to, to help him. And one day I just asked him, who didn't love you? And he just looked at me and like, he, he's a big guy. And, and uh, I thought he was going to rip my head off my shoulders. And uh, he's like, what did you say? And I said, who didn't love you? And it it, uh, it got pretty tense, it, but I, I kept digging and probing, and finally it came out that uh, his parents were hard chargers, and they had largely, even though they were in an affluent environment, they, he was pretty much abandoned as a kid, and he was raised by a nanny who saw that there was this precocious, um, sensitive, really you know needy child, like all like all kids are, that was not having any of his needs emotionally met, and so. She started cooking him lots of tasty food and they would sing songs and do stories around this food. And he basically associated love and connectivity with food. And uh, and this carried forward through his life. And um, I actually ended up telling him that I wasn't going to work with him anymore because I felt like I would be cheating him to continue working with him. And that that's actually another theme in the book is that people ask about, you know, cheating on, on diets and whatnot. And if you really dig into like the entomology of the word cheating, it means to gain an unfair advantage. And I, I just don't see how eating dodgy food is gaining an unfair advantage. There's, there's consequences, but we, when we do cheat on something, whether it's a test or our taxes or a relationship, we, we almost inevitably feel guilt around that because we're kind of social creatures and there's something woven into us such that we we feel this guilt around cheating but we you, you can't really cheat on food you can't have a good or a bad relationship with food it's all related to something else and what what was interesting was that for me to continue working with this individual and to continue being I, I was being paid very very well it was kind of like 24-hour travel around the world I went to Sweden and all kinds of places with this person but um for me to continue working with this person would have been cheating him because this issue wasn't about food. It was about something else. And I said that he needed to go work with a therapist and he needed to get his family involved. And, you know, he needed to quit using money as a leverage against other people. And he needed to come to some sort of a peaceful place with, um, you know, the intimacy that he had in his life. And it's been almost 10 years now and he's doing pretty good. He's still, you know ups and downs, but he's doing far better than, than what he was. And he's at a, a healthy, stable weight and he has a much more fulfilling relationships in his life. And had we just remained focused on food, which is really easy to do. It seems like a really concrete thing to, 
to get in and, hey, just change your diet and everything's going to be great. But so often when there's this notion that there's a relationship related to food, that's a misdirection. It is not the issue. There's something else going on. That's really fascinating. And if you think about it, I guess it's the first time in history, I mean, in the last few decades, especially that we really can have an emotional relationship with food. Because for so long, if there was food, you ate it, that was it was sustenance. It wasn't this, like you said, it wasn't a moral thing. And I think you're right, at least based on the magazines that I see marketed to women, they, I don't know if it's intentional, but they're very much feeding this emotional relationship with food and it, that like cycle of guilt and reward. And I know a lot of women really struggle with that. Do you address in the book at all, or do you have any suggestions for someone who maybe heard what you just said and thinks they do have a, an emotional underlying issue that probably is causing a lot of their food related issues? Well, I mean, they, they probably need to do some sort of therapy counseling or, or, you know, but it, it, the, the focus definitely needs to shift away from food, in my opinion. And again, I'm not a therapist. This is very, it's somewhat armchair stuff, but it's uh, it's interesting to me that on the one hand, we on the again on the mechanistic level, we're told if you just eat less and move more, then you're going to lose weight and your health will improve and everything's great. But that's very very difficult to do because of the way that the modern environment is set up. And then again, on this emotional side. We're told you need a healthy relationship with food, then everything's going to be great. But I think that that's just a complete misdirection. So the the success that I've seen around this really involves someone finding like a marriage and family counselor or somebody like that that they really trust. And the the person ideally has a little bit of an understanding of nutrition, too, so that they can kind of see where the these two things bridge together. And uh, I've seen a lot of success if you can have, say like someone's going to a CrossFit gym and they've got a coach there that they really trust and that person is interfacing with the the therapist. And you know, there's all kinds of HIPAA stuff and everything that you need to, to deal with with all that. But you, you know, you have a team that is supporting you in this process and helping you to get to this place. You know, usually it involves an improvement in connectivity and intimacy with the people around us. It involves improving the way that we love ourselves and love other people. And the food is a secondary tertiary thing. It's just the distraction. It's not the the issue at hand, but generally folks need to get out and, and get some sort of outside help and, and really um, at least ask the question, could the focus on food not be the issue? Could this be a distraction? Let, let's couch it like that. Let's not make it an absolute, but could we could we get in and ask the question, you know, maybe, even though maybe I've struggled with eating, maybe it's really not about the eating. Maybe it's not about the food. Maybe it's about something else. And we've been distracting ourselves focusing on this. That makes perfect sense. So talk about the book a little bit. Let's go into a little bit more detail now. Is it um, a weight loss book? I know we've talked about weight loss a lot, or who who else can benefit from the book? Oh man, it, it's uh, it's a huge book, and that made my publisher crazy because uh, I'll be honest, they really wanted something that was like seven days to Hollywood abs, and I was just like, that's that's not really me. You you picked the wrong person. I actually write my books, and and uh, so this thing really covers everything from gut health, autoimmunity, ketogenic diets, cancer, diabetes, neurodegeneration. It, it, it's really rangy, but I, I, um, roll it out in such a way that it's bite-sized chunks. So even though that sounds huge and potentially overwhelming, it, it just weaves all of this story together about how our neuroregulation of appetite, how we are told typically, you know, by on a biological level, when have we eaten enough? When have we not eaten enough? And, and, uh, uh, it looks deeply at that as kind of a mechanistic cause for overeating and some of the problems that we we face today. But all of those mechanisms also play into things like autoimmune disease, uh, gastrointestinal disorders, neurodegenerative disease, cardiovascular disease, uh, even performance elements. I, I talk a little bit about athletic performance in the book, but there's so much easy access to stuff like that. And people who are already kind of athletic and eating well, those aren't the folks that are going to potentially have shortened lives or, or quality of life due to, um, you know, some sort of a medical issue. So I, I don't put a ton of, of emphasis on that, but the first maybe third of the book really talks about that neuroregulation of appetite and how that 
informs the the notion that we really shouldn't be surprised that navigating this modern food world is challenging. Like if you are fat, sick, diabetic, and broken from a biological perspective, you're actually doing everything right. You know, we could argue that the evolutionary bi biology there, like you're doing everything right now for, for our, our purposes. Now we need to just say, okay, I understand that this is the reason why this stuff is hard. Now we need to build some strategies around changing all that. So on the front of the book, I, I lay out this story about the neuroregulation of appetite, how we're wired to eat. And the goal is that that will diffuse the emotionality and the guilt around these changes so that at least on some level people can say, okay, this might be a hard thing to do, but I understand now why it's hard. And those are difficult things to bridge because eating and, and, uh, Appetite exists in the the hedonic centers of the brain, the really deep centers of the brain that uh, sex and survival and food, that's where this stuff lives. And it's very emotional and it's tough to bridge the gap between taking in information on a logical level and then having that do some benefit on the emotional level. But, you know, I walk people through a process of kind of understanding these things so that they can get into a better emotional framework to be able to enact some change and then we use a 30 day reset to hopefully restore the neuroregulation of appetite, reduce inflammation, get people moving in a good direction. And then after the 30 days, we do a seven day carb test plan, which allows people to really map out what types of carbs and what types of foods that they do best with. And uh, we do both some subjective and objective measures um, to to figure out, you know, how you know, like, can you handle white rice or are lentils a better option? And so we do some pretty good mapping on that so that we can use this basic kind of paleo template as a starting place and then expand out and really get as much variety as we can within our, our nutrition. And then at the end of the book, I do go pretty deep into ketogenic diets and fasting. Um, I see these as being underutilized, but really powerful potential tools. But I, do, again, I, I, um, I'm, I wish that there was a one size fits all program for everybody, but there's just not, uh, for the vast majority of people following some sort of a whole foods paleo S type approach, and then finding what carbs you do best with that is maybe outside of paleo land. That's a great place to be. And for some people, ketogenic diets, and maybe even a little bit of intermittent fasting, maybe the additional kind of muscle that they need to bring to bear on a, a certain situation, particularly folks with neurodegenerative disease, some autoimmune diseases, like they may really benefit from that, that additional effort of doing something like a ketogenic diet or some intermittent fasting, but it's really powerful medicine. And I, I make the case for, you know, how those modalities might be important, but you also don't want to willy nilly implement them. Yeah, that's such an important point. And that's what I loved most of the book is the over, overarching theme that you just talked about so much and so well of that shift of realizing that if you're struggling with, you know, excess weight or these health problems, that you reframe it for people. So it's not that you're fighting your body. Your body's actually doing great. Your body, like you would survive. You, you would be one of the allies exactly. that survives. Yeah. Like your body's awesome. And just reframing that in your mind of like, instead of fighting your body, but just like, wow, your body's awesome and this is amazing, but here's how to work with it. So you're not fighting it. I think that for so many people is going to be a paradigm shift. I really hope it is. And, and uh, it, it, this is kind of crazy, but it, it's maybe helpful. But, you know, if if a moment from now there was a giant solar flare and it created an EMP pulse and it destroyed the electrical grid around the planet and basically like our cars don't work, electricity doesn't work, trucks don't deliver food. Um, in like three days, things start getting really bad. In three weeks, things are an absolute disaster. But it... it who are the folks that are going to be alive, say, like two months from now, if that event happens? It's the people who are really significantly overweight. And this sounds kind of crazy. You're kind of like, well, they weren't that healthy and everything. But there have been meta and I talk about this in the book. There was a medically supervised fast. A guy was almost 500 pounds. Um, they, they gave him water and some electrolytes. And then he didn't eat anything for 382 days. And he was basically in a very deep state of starvation ketosis. He lost an enormous amount of weight and then went on to, to uh, maintain that new healthy, stable weight when he started eating. But this guy had more than a year 
of stored calories in his body. All he needed was water. And so, you know, the, in a, in a time gone by that really wasn't that, that long ago, when there's still places in the world where people live at the margin, having some extra body fat might've been the difference between life and death for you. It might've been the difference between life and death for your family. And so if we can get in, this is where a little bit of that ancestral health framework is, is so valuable. You know, it's like, well, why does my body want to gain fat? Well, because it kept us alive in the past, but today we, we, uh, we never have periods where we go hungry even for, you know, a few hours or a few days. Um, we don't have to do any physical activity if we don't want to, we can have food delivered to our door. Um, our circadian rhythm is completely disordered due to looking at, you know, uh, uh, social media in the evening and not turning off our cell phones and having the lights on and everything. And once our sleep is disturbed, that disrupts our neuroregulation of appetite. It makes us insulin resistant and all kinds of terrible things kind of come as a consequence of that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I really have a profound hope that if people can understand that uh, the state of weight gain is normal and expected and it was good in the past, but it's just working against us today. Yeah. And it's so smart because you talk about like changing those factors so that you're actually changing the biology to make that where you're not having to fight as hard anyway against your body and that you get into a good rhythm with that. And so you've mentioned a couple of times um, the low carb thing. And I want to bring that up, especially because I think a lot of women have a lot of confusion about this because even just the top 10 Google results for this, you will get eight different opinions. And it's like, is it high carb, low fat? Is it high fat, low carb? Should you never do low carb as a woman? Should you do low carb as a woman unless you have thyroid disease? There's like all these qualifiers. So how do you address this and why are to eat? Really great question. Um, I walk people through a process of discovering if they are insulin resistant or not. And we can use both some subjective measures, you know, like how do you feel between meals? Do you get foggy headed? Do you tend to store fat right at the waistline is our, our, uh, waist to hip measurement, a, a particular ratio. And those things subjectively, there's some, there's some wiggle room in there for interpretation, but they can give us some sense of whether or not we are insulin resistant. Also, I recommend some blood work that looks pretty specifically at determining if we are insulin resistant or heading down that peridiabetic kind of path. And if an individual is insulin resistant, which a lot of people are, estimates are uh, more than 40% of the American population is is peridiabetic now to say nothing of of becoming insulin resistant. And uh, if you if you really dig into this and look at it from, again, kind of an evolutionary biology framework, you could argue virtually everybody is insulin resistant to some degree because of the the way our modern world works. But if an individual is insulin resistant, then a low carb diet is probably more appropriate. But low carb is a really, to your point, it's a really subjective thing. And there was a fantastic paper, which I, I talk about in, in this book that looked at the qualitative nature of carbohydrates. So we have examples again, from this kind of, uh, ancestral health perspective of populations that eat lots of carbs and are very, very healthy. And then we have examples of populations that eat virtually no carbs and are very healthy. But the one thing that seems to be common between both of them is that their foods are whole, unprocessed. And when they start eating westernized foods, then their health deteriorates. And that's kind of the one thing. And the, the characteristic of westernized foods is that carbohydrate in particular, but also different seed oils are refined and introduced into the diet. And if we eat carbohydrate from things like beans or whole rice or fruits or vegetables, the carbohydrates are inside of a, a cell. And that cell wall in the plant is kind of hard to break up. And so it slows the release of carbohydrate to our bloodstream and also where it releases in our gastrointestinal tract. And if we highly refine carbohydrates, all those carbs tend to get absorbed in the small intestine, which tends to starve the bacteria in the rest of our digestive tract. And it causes this process called SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine. And this process seems to be highly inflammatory. And that inflammation really seems to kickstart the insulin resistance process. And there've been some fascinating studies where they'll take a lean mouse who has a healthy gut biome 
inoculate it with the unhealthy gut biome of a overweight mouse. And then that, that formerly lean mouse starts gaining weight. And so there's some really cryptic implications about the, the qualitative nature of carbohydrate and what it does for us. And so I really make a strong case in the book that first we, we do a pretty strong shift towards just high quality carbohydrates. And we're talking about lots of fruits, vegetables, root shoots, and tubers. And the, the level that I recommend in the book is somewhere between 75 and 150 grams of, of carbs total per day, which from fruits, vegetables, root shoots, and tubers is hard to do. Like you really, you need to, you need to get in and eat that stuff because they, they tend to be bulky and pretty filling, even if we're doing some stuff like apples and oranges and bananas and whatnot. And we have people motor forward for a period of time and then they reassess how they're doing. And if everything's good, then we keep going forward. If they are still getting subjective and objective measures of uh, potentially too many carbohydrates, then we kind of ratchet those down. But as the person shifts towards insulin sensitivity, or if the person is insulin sensitive from the get-go, then we do the opposite and we do a moderate to high protein, moderate carb and moderate fat, which is, you know, kind of almost like a, a zone type ratio because there's been some really great studies that, that suggest that people who are insulin resistant do much better on lower carbohydrate intakes and the low is variable. Uh, you know, it, it, some people are all, all the way into the ketogenic range. Uh, most people can do great more in that like 75 to 150 grams of, of carbohydrate range. But if someone is insulin sensitive but overweight, a low-carb diet is probably not going to work well for them. They will probably do better on a low or moderate fat intake, higher protein, and then moderate carb intake. So there is a lot of distinction there. And, you know, this is the benefit of, if you have a really good practitioner or coach, they can they can get in and quiz you and, and figure this stuff out. And it's it's more challenging to do this in the book, but I, I, I hope I do a reasonably good job of helping people be able to kind of navigate that process. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just realizing that because I think there's been so much fear around carbs because of all of the misinformation that I know people who are literally afraid to eat berries because of the carbs in them and realizing like you didn't get insulin resistant by eating zucchini right, or squash, right. you know, like this is not a normal thing and that there's a definite time and a place for whole food carbs. And I think that you make that point really well, actually. Hey guys, I want to pause this episode for just a minute to again thank the sponsor for this episode that makes it possible, perfectsupplements.com. They make these amazing natural nutrient-dense superfoods made in the USA and incredibly reasonably priced. They are recent additions to our diet and I'm finding that every product of theirs I love um, that I've tried. A favorite in our house right now, especially among my husband who does not like liver no matter how I cook it, no matter what I do, is their perfect desiccated liver supplement, which is a capsule. So if you have listened for long, you know that I use organ meats in our home a lot and I consider it nature's multivitamin if it's from a really good source. Um, if you have a hard time with the taste of liver, like my husband does, you may want to try their desiccated liver capsules. Other products of theirs we've been using recently are collagen, their greens powders, and even fermented kale because I will admit I don't actually love kale. It's just one of those greens I don't love and so it's made it possible to get it in our diet. But back to their liver. It's made from 100% grass-fed cattle and nothing else. Their liver is packed with vitamin A, B12, and iron. And it's this is the same product that has been recommended by Tim Ferriss and Dave Asprey. And I finally broke down and tried it. And I love it and can see why they recommend it. So I actually found, especially with um, pregnancy and nursing, that liver capsules like theirs can really help with energy levels and help mental clarity, which, of course, all moms need. So I wanted to, you guys to be able to try it and love it as much as I have. And they've offered an amazing discount. So you can get 10% off of any order by going to perfectsupplements.com forward slash wellnessmama and using the coupon code wellnessmama10. But the best part, if you're from a big family or even if you only have a couple of kids, you can order in bulk and get even bigger discounts. So they offer 25% off if you order three bottles of their supplements and 30% off if you order six bottles. So if you combine this with the coupon code wellnessmama10, you're saving 35 and 40%. And you can mix and match these to get a volume discount. Um, great way to get discounts on their prices and some of the best prices I have found on these supplements, especially USA made high quality ones. So just go to perfectsupplements.com forward slash wellnessmama to get all the details. This episode is also sponsored by the Wellness Mama Cookbook. 
And as I mentioned before, this is a resource that I worked for hundreds and hundreds of hours on to create a guide that would actually be useful, practical, and really easy to use for moms who are busy and who don't have hours and hours each day to spend in the kitchen, but who also prioritize cooking real food. And my kids helped me test these recipes, so they are definitely family approved. They're also mom approved, and here's why. Um, like I said, I'm an incredibly busy mom and I don't have a lot of extra time. So the majority of recipes can be made in under 30 minutes and a lot of them can be made in only one pan because I'm personally not a big fan of dishes and would rather not do any more than I have to. So you can check out the cookbook at any major bookstore on Amazon or on wellnessmama.com. It contains over 200 family-friendly recipes, as well as some meal plans, some guidance on planning, and some how-to for getting your family on board with eating healthy. I also like to tell people that it's a completely grain-free cookbook, but if you don't avoid grains, you can easily add in things like rice and pasta to dishes for most meals. Um, what I did though is I replaced a lot of the refined ingredients in the recipes with vegetables. Our family does not eat any refined flour or refined sugar, so I replaced those in recipes with vegetables that kids love, like zucchini and cabbage and sweet potatoes. And there's everything from lasagna to chicken fingers to shepherd's pie and all of our family favorites. You can check them out, like I said, any major bookstore or at wellnessmama.com. Now back to the episode. You also talk about ketosis and you've mentioned it a couple times in the interview so far. For anyone who maybe isn't super familiar with that, can you explain what it is and like why there is a time and a place for it? Sure, sure. So if we were to go without food for a couple of days, our liver will run out of carbohydrate in the form of glycogen. And this is kind of the main supply depot if we're not eating consistently for providing glucose to the brain. And the, the brain under kind of modern Western environments, it runs almost exclusively off of glucose and the brain hates changes in blood sugar, either the blood sugar going too high or going too low. And so if we are in a state of fasting and we have inadequate carbohydrate to be released by the liver to keep the brain happy, we start mobilizing a lot of fat. And fat is a great energy source, but fats can't pass the blood-brain barrier. So what happens is the liver, when there's inadequate um, substrate to, to use the the fat for energy in a, in kind of a catalytic fashion, then it, it's, um, the fat is converted into these things called ketone bodies and ketone bodies still kind of carry the energy of the fat, but they're water soluble. And these ketone bodies can then substitute for 70, 80% of the glucose needs of the brain. And it becomes a very stable state energy source. And, uh, uh in the past, you know, it's interesting, and this may be a bit of a diversion, but, you know, we, we get into this story where it's, you know, should we only eat carbs? Should we only be in ketosis? And we have these people in these different camps. And the, the, the longer that time has gone on for me, um, if someone is metabolically healthy and they're metabolically flexible, we should probably be able to transition between these two states and do it almost seamlessly. And that's kind of what we see even in some modern studied hunter gatherers, when they eat carbohydrate, they process them beautifully. Their insulin barely goes up. They store the carbohydrates. But then if they go a period of time without eating, they start producing ketone bodies for the brain almost immediately. And this is kind of like the, the holy grail, like best place to be. We should be able to process carbohydrate. We should be able to process fat and, and use ketone bodies for, for a fuel. But for some people, they can have mitochondrial damage, and we're just now starting to learn, you know, maybe this is caused by overeating, maybe it's caused by environmental toxicants, maybe it's caused by changes in our circadian rhythm. But for whatever reason, people start losing the ability to use both carbohydrate and fat as a fuel. And they they literally, like, portions of their body essentially starve. And this is some of the the process of neurodegenerative diseases where we lose the energy source to keep these neurons alive and they just die. And uh, this is some of the underpinning of things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And so in a starvation state, we can start ramping up the, the production of, of ketones because we're just not consuming any food. But we can also do something called nutritional ketosis where we eat a moderate amount of protein a very low carbohydrate diet in with regards to effective carbohydrate. You could eat a ton 
a vegetable matter, you know, uh, uh, leafy vegetables, cruciferous vegetables, just low carbohydrate density vegetables. And then you eat a moderate to high amount of fat based off your activity level and the amount of, of body fat that you store. And this is the nutritional ketosis approach has been used for over 100 years for things like refractory epilepsy. It's been very well studied in those populations and it's well tolerated, but it is hard to do. Like limiting carbohydrate to those super low levels is definitely a challenge. And in the book, I I make the point that we can use some things like MCT oil, either concentrated medium chain triglyceride oils or coconut oils as a means of boosting our ketone levels, even while we're eating a little bit of carbs. Like you, you could be in that like 50 to 100 grams of carbs a day level, which normally wouldn't be a level that we would see very high ketone levels. But if you supplement with your fat intake with some MCT oils, then that can kind of boost the, the ketones a bit. And there's you know, just emerging lots and lots of data that would suggest that this ketogenic state may be very helpful from an anti-aging perspective, from a neuroprotective perspective. But I think that there's a really strong argument for doing ketosis cyclically. And this is a really, really contentious topic. And it's kind of ironic. Like there are sections of the internet that would like to see my, my head stuck on a pike for suggesting ketosis at all. And then there are other sections of the internet that the fact that I would say that you shouldn't necessarily be in ketosis every day, all the time for the rest of your life, those people want my head on a pike. And so, it, you know, there's some really entrenched camps that really are not amenable to this notion of customization and nuance. And uh, let me know if I, I covered the ketosis to, to your satisfaction. I'm, I, I know I kind of got off in the weeds there a bit. Yeah, that was perfect. And I think that's a, I actually love that point of cycling things. And I think that's kind of also the solution. If you're doing it intentionally, it can be helpful for women who have kind of done this whole like pendulum between, you know, eating too much or restricting for so long is like always having something new to switch it up to. And like with ketosis, even I believe most low carbers and people in ketosis, especially do a carb refeed once in a while, right? I mean, typically that is used to keep your body from downregulating. Am I explaining that right? Yeah, you know, some people do, but there are like there's a, a a Facebook group called Keto Games, and I really like those people. They are non dogmatic about this stuff, and they're very good on both the science and the coaching. And you know, there's there's a reality that there are some people that do great on high carb, and I mean, it could be almost any carb. <laughs> we we know these people, you know, like they just. They're, they're lean, their blood works great, they have awesome energy, um, but they, you know, they eat a degree of carbs that would make me diabetic in like a day. And then there are other people, and I'm actually kind of one of these people, I feel amazing on long-term ketosis, and I have great energy, fantastic cognition, and I find the carb refeeds to be annoying and, and kind of make me feel terrible. And I, I've never had any real thyroid issues or anything like that. So long as I, I was getting enough energy, the one of the big challenges of low carb and ketogenic diets, because you do re reduce the carbohydrate, you reduce insulin levels and insulin is really important in, in keeping thyroid levels normal. You, it, when we release insulin, it tends to convert uh, T4 into T3 and T3 is kind of the active form of uh, thyroid hormone. So you can suppress thyroid activity to a degree and there's debate whether or not that is clinically significant or not, because there's kind of two pieces to this. You need more thyroid to process more carbohydrate. So is that thyroid around just dealing with the carbohydrate or is it really a factor in the overall metabolic process? But then there's another piece to it that thyroid can be impacted by low caloric intake. And the beauty of ketosis and low carb diets is that they're incredibly satiating. Like this is kind of the, the holy grail for people is how do I live in a free living environment and just eat the right amount where I feel satiated? I'm not hungry all the time and I can stick with that over the long haul. And ketogenic and low carb diets are really pretty damn good at that. But in some ways they're too good. Like it is really easy to under eat on that process. Um, I, was feeling kind of run down and sluggish. And I, I, I forget who I had on my podcast, but they were talking about, man, I just see a lot of people under eating on these 
lower carb diet. And I started weighing and measuring my food for a week. And I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I'm about 175 pounds, reasonably lean, carry a decent amount of muscle. I was eating 1,600 calories a day. Whoa. I wasn't, I wasn't hungry at all. <laughs> I mean, I just, I wasn't hungry. And so what I had to do was actually increase my carb level a little bit. So they actually had more hunger because I mean, I would try to add more food and I was literally kind of like gagging, like, Oh God, I can't eat anything else. So I was in a state where I was so satiated, which is good on the one hand, but the downside was that I was chronically under eating and it's not like I was, you know, some weird, you know, food issue. Like I just flat wasn't hungry, which again, you know, it's, that's really great stuff, but this is where these these things are tools and they can cut more than one, one direction, you know, like highly satiating meals are great for certain people, but let's say we've got a high school student who's wanting to play football and he needs to eat a lot of food. A super low carb diet is probably not a good idea because the kid's not going to be able to eat that much food. And then, you know, for, for the rest of us, it's very easy for a low carb diet to, to get us into a hypocaloric level plus a low insulin level. And that is definitely a situation where we could see some thyroid and uh, cortisol dysregulation, which then has knock-on effects on things like progesterone and estrogen. So again, it's a really nuanced deal. Like it can be absolutely the bee's knees, the perfect solution for certain people. And it can be absolutely disastrous for other people and those same people can change over the course of time. The low carb diet may have been perfectly appropriate at one point, and then they may need to shift gears at some some point down the road. Yeah, that's really, really fascinating. And what I found really interesting, too, reading this, because obviously it's got applications for a lot of people in a wide variety of demographics, but I found it really, I think, applicable to women who are in that pregnancy and nursing and young children phase, because you're not advocating anything extreme. You're advocating explaining to them how to find the right balance for their body. But I noticed some similarities between uh, kind of the guidance you gave and what most midwives, especially home birth midwives, encourage women to consume and to have as a lifestyle because um, so my last two births have both been home births and with midwives you don't have all the medical equipment that you would in a hospital and in order to be able to birth at home you need to be kind of within that range of normal and you can't have gestational diabetes you can't have a huge baby and they recommend a similar type diet at least where I live to help give yourself the best chance of all of those factors so I think your book is really applicable especially to women and especially pregnant nursing and young children um, because of that and because you give a really usable practical framework um, I also wanted to touch on fasting again because you've mentioned it a couple times and there's seems to be equally uh, staunch camps on the different sides of the fasting debate. Do you think uh, for women especially, let's just talk about women and fasting. Is there a time and a place for it? Oh, man. Yeah. And you're you're right. Like people become religious zealots over this topic. Um, fasting is another one of these stressors. Exercise is a stress. Fasting can be a stress. And it's what we call a hormetic stress, which a little bit of stress today can actually help me to survive more stress in a couple of days. Like if, I, if I'm exposed to a, a larger stressor and this is kind of the, the adaptation that we get from physical training and, and fasting can play a, a part in that, too. So I think that there's kind of, again, baked into the cake of our genetics, there's kind of an expectation that we would have ebbs and flows in our energy. You know, one day we would eat a ton of calories and another day we might not get much, if anything. And there's kind of a flow, uh, you know, instead of just a constant steady state. So there's kind of an anthropological argument, a metabolic argument about why fasting may be beneficial. We see some great studies that suggest that you know, maybe some time restricted, uh, feeding, you know, you make your, your dinner happen at 5 PM and then you don't eat breakfast until nine or 10 AM. And so you're eating the bulkier calories during the day, which, uh, helps to entrain the circadian rhythm. And also it's a time restricted period. So there's a long period of time when our, our body is not processing food, which allows us to get into a lower inflammatory state. So there's some really compelling arguments for all that. The challenge that I've seen is that the people who are willing to do intermittent fasting are also crossfitting six days a week and doing power yoga and their super mom and they've eaten two grams of carbohydrates in the last six months. These are the like over the top type A people, which I 
tend to be in that category so I can get away with you know, <laughs> making fun of them because I, I, I am those people. Um, but the folks that I've seen who will do intermittent fasting are oftentimes the people who shouldn't do intermittent fasting because they're already just out of control. They're over the top in like everything. And the people who should be doing intermittent fasting are the mellow like possibly somewhat sedentary, you know, not wound tight, uh, you know, not super adrenalized and cortisol a washed person. Those people would probably do really well with a little bit of intermittent fasting, uh, you know, where they just uh, maybe they skip breakfast two or three times a week and they do lunch and dinner instead, or they do breakfast, lunch and dinner. But again, it's in a you know, it's in a seven or eight hour window instead of eating 16 hours and all kinds of snacks between meals and stuff like that. So I, I think that fasting or intermittent fasting can be really powerful, but there's definitely appropriate dose. Like there's a dose response curve and there's certain people for whom it's appropriate and the amount is appropriate. Uh, there are though some really fascinating studies that are that have been coming out. There's a guy, uh, Walter Longo, who does fasting research, and he's developed this thing called a fasting mimicking diet. And it's basically about six to seven days where you're eating um, maybe about 600 calories a day, 500 calories a day, and it's mainly ketogenic. But uh, there was a great uh, study where they, they compared a group of folks who had multiple sclerosis who were on a ketogenic diet for six months and then they did a fasting mimicking, mimicking diet for seven days and a, a, another group of multiple sclerosis folks. And then they just went on kind of a Mediterranean diet, you know, a reasonably well-composed diet after that. The ketogenic group of multiple sclerosis folks had a modest improvement in some of the signs and symptoms of, of multiple sclerosis. The fasting mimicking group, I want to say, had a 25% uh, remission rate in the multiple sclerosis and almost across the board, a dramatic improvement in symptoms. And what, what's interesting about fasting, if it extends out a little bit longer, is that we, because we are calorically restricted in that state and we need protein as a substrate to, to rebuild our body and whatnot, we will actually break down tissues in our body that are old and, and not functioning properly. Different cells will become what's called senescent Technically, they're still alive, but they're not really functioning the way that they should, and they, they become pro-inflammatory signalers in our body. But a bunch of these cells that we really don't need get basically broken down and chewed up and reused, and this in, includes sections of our immune system. And at the end of the fasting-mimicking diet, what's really interesting is people need a refeed period where they eat a significant amount of food. They're not overeating, but we're not trying to caloric restrict, but that refeed period is when we regrow organ mass and immune system mass in that new immune system doesn't carry the inflammatory response to autoimmune triggers. So we basically have rebooted our immune system. So there are some really powerful uh, potential therapeutics around fasting, but it's a really strong tool and people need to, to be wily about how they use it. it. You know, any powerful medicine can, can be the inappropriate tool if not used properly. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to make sure I respect your time and I'm going to make sure I link to also you have some blog posts about some of these topics uh, and of course also to the book, which is now available, I know, on Amazon and major bookstores. But for anyone who wants to find out more about everything you talked about, where can people find you, Rob? Oh, uh, robwolf.com, two Bs, R-O-B-B-W-L-F.com. And you can find the blog, the podcast, and most of my social media links. That, that's where most everything happens. Awesome. And I'm ex so excited for Wired to Eat. And I hope people will check it out because you also talk about sleep and exercise and the importance of community and a lot of topics. We didn't have time to talk. Um, but while I could talk to you all day, I feel like I need to respect your time and the listener's time. But thank you so, so much for being here, Rob. This is so fascinating. I think this has been so informative and it's gone by so fast. I can't believe we've been talking almost an hour already. Oh, thank you. I have the gift of gab. And whether I talk or write, um, usually people just kind of drift off into a subtle doze, like I have the perfect cure for insomnia. So you you probably had like a very restful period here dozing for a little bit. So oh, gosh, thank you no. for having me on the show. It's really a huge honor. I love everything that you are doing. So it, it's really a huge honor being on your show.
Oh, thank you so much for being here. And thanks to all of you for your time and listening. And I'll see you next time on the Healthy Moms Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Healthy Moms Podcast. Did you know that you can become a Wellness Mama VIP member for free? Just go to wellnessmama.com forward slash podcast to subscribe to the podcast and then click free membership to gain access to a membership library of health and wellness resources. You'll get the latest from Wellness Mama each week, as well as special discounts and offers. Also, find Wellness Mama on social media to stay updated with the latest podcast episodes, blog posts, and more. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next week.